Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of the powerful questions raised by Macbeth arise from the way that Shakespeare uses language. In this episode, we'll hear Shakespearean actors performing some key speeches from the play. Then we'll hear Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford, discuss the language and themes of the speeches. The first speech we'll hear is from Act One, when Macbeth is first contemplating the idea of killing Duncan. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all, here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. But in these cases we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison's chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed. Then, as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity, like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. (sighs) I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. Everything in Macbeth is about time and speed, I think. And, And that's at the kind of macro level. This is a relatively short play. It's a play which moves along pretty quickly. Uh, it's a play which doesn't dilly-dally with any side plots or or kind of parallel plots. It's it we're there. We get going with the murder of Duncan straight straight up as soon as we as, as soon as we kind of hit the blocks. We don't have that 
opening scene where someone says, you know, well, what do you think about this? We're right in there with the, with the witches. There's, there's something um, very kind of dynamic and streamlined and breathless about, about this play. And speed is one of its main characteristics. And all these... Uh, all these ideas about time are kind of whirling, whirling, whirling around this play. And perhaps one of the most amazing things about about Shakespeare's writing is how these large themes seem to be distilled into the, the at the level of the line or the level of the the level of the word. This characteristic um, short short weight or condensation or or um, contraction of of particular words that losing out uh, of syllables the replacement of of nouns with it or that these short kind of monosyllables uh, there's a sense that the language doesn't ha- always have time to explain itself doesn't always have time to set out the parameters very clearly we feel as if we're in the middle uh, of of a thought already and we're trying desperately to catch up Macbeth's first soliloquy is a really good example of that. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. So firstly, what what is this it? I mean, we've got a sense of it, but he doesn't tell us what it is. Uh, all these uh, monosyllables, if it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done. That sequence of monosyllables, they they move really quickly. You move through those those move off your lips really fast, so the line speeds up. And then tis and twer are, they should be two syllables, shouldn't they? They should be it is and it were, but there's such a kind of pressure on this language that it can't doesn't have time for that. So we're all kind of haste, rush, rushing and rushing and rushing. So even at a moment of sort of contemplation and reflection, which is how we think of soliloquy, nothing's actually happening here except for speech. That speech is under issues out it, uh, under pressure, as if it's come out from a kind of valve or something. It's it's kind of spurting spurting out in this in in this very uh, sort of powerful and energetic way. Another significant aspect of this speech, as we discussed in the last episode, is the way Macbeth avoids acknowledging the murder by refusing to name it. There's a moment when the witches ask each other, what is to you do a deed without a name? And that deed without a name feels as if it's the, uh, it governs a lot of the language of the play. It can't, it can't be spoken. Words can't be spoken to describe uh, the murder of Duncan. Uh, language is sort of inadequate to, uh, to approach what's, what's happening Macbeth can't say to himself what he's doing, and 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 when he does, uh, he uses this extraordinarily unfamiliar word, assassination. Now we associate assassination uh, it, it, with the murder, the murder of a of an important figure, the murder of a king. It doesn't seem to really mean that. Then it just means a sort of commission of an action, um, but it's a word that you would not use. Uh, at the beginning of the 17th century, if you wanted to be clear about what you were saying, it's a word that's often the case with Shakespeare's multisyllabic words, difficult words, Latinate words, long words. They're often being used actually when characters are trying to stand on a kind of dignity or trying to make actually rather um, 
mean and dirty things that they're doing somehow more elevated or more distanced. And I think that's what assassination is doing here. Macbeth saying, um, uh, if he's, what, what he's going to do is just stab a defenceless man in his bed. That's really, that, that's what he's planning to do. Uh, and he's, it, he's either trying to avoid that by the language he uses, or he's trying to disguise it by making it into these, uh, it, this extraordinary word, assassination. Like her husband, Lady Macbeth uses language in a way that avoids naming exactly what they are about to do. Here's her speech from Act One, just after she has read Macbeth's letter, saying the witches have prophesied that he will be king. Glamis thou art, and Cordor, and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet I do fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great. Art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. Wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Thou'dst have great glamour, that which cries, Thus thou must do, if thou have it, and that which rather thou dost fear to do, than wishest should be undone. Hie thee hither, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal. So this speech from Lady Macbeth is just immediately after she's read Macbeth's letter. This is the first time actually we really meet her in the play, so it's uh, a time we'd be listening really closely actually to what she says about herself really, what she reveals about herself and what she reveals about, uh, about the plot. And it's great to see how she immediately gets to grips with what's at stake in what the witches have prophesied. Glams thou art and Cordor, and shalt be what thou art promised. But one of the things I really noticed here, and it's it, this is a feature of the play more generally, there are nouns that are unsayable and they are avoided or evaded by using pronouns. Uh, so what thou art promised is really, you know, the third, the third leg in that those prophecies is king and even as Lady Macbeth is sort of thinking her way round how that's going to be she can't say that she can't she can't quite say the word and we see that as we go through this speech that there's a lot of pronouns that are not completely clear it's not completely clear what the governing noun is that can't be spoken um, if we just skip a couple of lines, we'll come back. But what wouldst thou highly, that wouldst thou holily, wouldst not play false and yet wouldst wrongly win. There are a couple of things there. One is um, it, it's, again, unable to speak. What 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 are the stakes here? Uh, it's doing it in this circumlocutory way. And related to that, I think, is this uh, an extraordinary capacity, an extraordinary quality in the language of Macbeth of of con condensation and compression. So there are lots of, you can see this in the um, printed text of the play where there's a, a, a an apostrophe, an elision mark uh, in, a, in, a, in a word and that suggests that it's been contracted down say to one syllable or something that's been, it's been crushed together. It relates to a wider theme of speed and haste and the kind of 
uh, energy of of the play that there's there's not even really time to spell out all the all, all the syllables. We've got to keep going. It's a kind of headlong um, uh, pace, structural pace, plotted pace, but also metrical pace in the in, in the very lines themselves. So that quality of evasion, the quality of compression, um, and I, I guess. The, the last sort of point I'd want to make about about this speech is um, the the parallel. No, sorry. The last point I'd want to make about this speech is the contrast between very uh, everyday domestic uh, kinds of language and this very high abstract poetic kind of speech. So we can see that here. The milk of human kindness uh, is a is a very ordinary um kind of phrase it's a, it, it takes its um it takes its coordinates from from the kitchen or from the nursery or or something it's kind of different from what she says at the end of the speech fate and metaphysical aid metaphysical aid i think is the witches does seem to have the crowned with all um she she moves from this uh, kind of domestic world to this language of of kingship, the golden round uh, of 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 the crown, and that's a feature too of of the language uh, of the play. This is a play which has got possets and dearest Chuck. Uh, that's still a, a phrase in the north of England. It it reminds me of my childhood. Uh, dearest Chuck. These are very uh, colloquial kinds of kinds of words, and then it's also got. Uh, multitudinous and incarnadine, these big kind of Latin up words. In this speech from Act 5, we see Macbeth long after the murder of Duncan and see how his crimes have affected him. This speech is prompted by Macbeth learning that his own wife has just died. She should have died hereafter. It would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow... And tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day, to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out. Brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. This is an amazing speech, isn't it? Uh, at the end of Act quite near the end of Act 5, then we've just got this short sequence of kind of fighting scenes that are going to bring everything to a close. But in certain ways, this is this is the end of the play, I think. Um, this extraordinary um, 
a sort of elegy for Lady Macbeth, but a kind of elegy for everything. Uh, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. But then this this ex, this extraordinary sequence of of repetitions. Um, we we're saying how difficult it is for the for the Macbeths to think about a future, and how it's the future that they that everything they do is probably trying to secure. But nevertheless, uh, it's the future that proves completely elusive and that and that, and that is denied them. And here, in that moment of kind of accepting that, I think Macbeth talks about the future being really just more of more of today, not being some golden time, not being something um, extraordinary to aspire to, but something more more like the Stoics think that you know life is is a a drudge of uh, steps towards towards death. It's a very um, bleak view that Shakespeare expresses actually quite quite a number of times. This is this is similar in a way to uh, what Hamlet says in To Be or Not To Be. It's similar to what Claudio says about when he's facing death in prison in Measure for Measure. I guess one of the things that's uh, really, uh, really resonates here in this speech is the equation of that sort of pointlessness in a way with theatre because of course uh you, you know theatre is not pointless and theatre is not pointless uh in the sort of 150th minute of a Shakespeare tragedy uh theatre is not the image you think you would you would reach for to say it's all empty it's all kind of meaningless um but really a, a really interesting idea that life uh life is as empty and inauthentic and importantly as brief as uh a, a, as a theatrical performance one of the ways i think the elizabethans and jacobeans embraced theater as their dominant art form and their dominant recreation was in this relationship between the theater and real life uh was that relationship um that the theatre was a, there was obviously a meta metaphorical relationship between the two, but which way did the metaphor go? You know, was was the theatre uh, a, a kind of metaphor for life or was life in some ways a metaphor for the theatre? Uh, when you call a theatre the globe, are you saying the globe is quite small or the theatre is quite huge? You know, and obviously you're, you're kind of saying both. Um, so so this, this recognition uh, of the theatricality of life and that that theatricality is not about uh, endless possibility, but it's about the drudgery of your lines um, running out and you being, uh, you, you, your story being over uh, is, is really, really resonant here. And I think it's Macbeth, it's much more important than what comes next uh, for Macbeth and for Macduff in there. Uh, in their encounter, and much more of a of a kind of farewell, a valediction for the play than Malcolm's last speech with which the play actually ends. And I think the the comparison between the two brings out uh, the difference in uh, the difference in investment between Macbeth and Malcolm that the the play's language bestows. 
Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriand. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Dame Harriet Walter for Macbeth, If It Were Done When Tis Done. Amanda Harris for Lady Macbeth, Glamis Thou Art. Andrew Woodall for Macbeth, She Should Have Died Hereafter. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber's Shakespeare After All. Susan Snyder's Macbeth, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith's This is Shakespeare. And the following editions of Macbeth, the 2016 Norton Shakespeare, the 2009 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2015 Arden Shakespeare. For full details on these sources, see our course webpage at shakespeareforall.com. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.